So today, as I said, we're continuing our series looking at the book of Job, which we've just heard from. As you might remember, if you've been here, sorry, well, I'll say farewell to our youth who are going off for their conversation. Thank you very much. We'll see you back for communion. So as you might remember, when we've looked at this in the last few weeks, Job in the Old Testament is as a book. Uh, it's a story of a wealthy, uh, upright man, a very good man, who lost everything that he had in a single day. So he lost his wealth, he lost his property, he lost his family and his health. Uh, and in the story, this is set up as a test of his trust in God's goodness and his faith that God still was a righteous God. Uh, for us, though, as we read it, Job is an investigation, I think, of what it means to encounter suffering and to wrestle with it in the light of our relationship to God. So can we still trust and know that God is good, uh, even when things go wrong in our lives? And this is what Job is asking. And in this book, it looks really at these questions in a very honest and piercing way as Job discusses this issue with his friends. Uh, Last week we thought a bit more about how to read Job and opening it up to us and Jerome introduced us to the idea of a lament which is the practice uh, quite common in the Bible of just opening your heart up to God and acknowledging all your pain and your negative feelings before him and just laying them out there as they are. And when things are bad, lamenting says, look, they are bad. It's not okay. I'm not going to pretend that it's okay. Uh, and that, which, as we heard, this helps us to be more authentic and people before God and to be more whole and to integrate our lives before him. It's an important thing to do. And Job actually does this at the start of the book. He laments the situation that he's in and how terrible it is. And he questions in his grief even whether the life that God has given him is any good and whether he was better off not being born. And then this kicks off the section in Job, which is dedicated to investigating this question. How do you respond to Job's lament? And so today we're going to start three weeks looking at what is the meat of Job, really, most of the chapters. We had quite a long reading today, but it's a very long book of a similar kind, uh, which are a series of conversations between Job and three friends that came to visit him after he had his misfortune. So three guys, they're called Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, we're looking at Eliphaz today. So there's an old saying which you might have heard, a friend in need is a friend indeed. Is that something you're familiar with? So it's the idea that those who stick by you in difficult times, when you're struggling, when you're not doing well, those are the people who you know they're actually your friends because they don't need you to be doing well in order to get something from you. Um, they're not fair-weather friends. They're indeed friends when, you're light, when it's raining in your life, when things come. And that's true, isn't it? A friend in need is someone who is really a friend of yours. But I've heard it said that in Job's case, he might have been tempted to say, uh, a friend in need is a pest indeed. Um, because as we read in chapter 2, these, these men, they come to sit with Job in his grief. But then after a while, they start to question him and to reason with him about the meaning of what's happened to him. And this is why they're pests for him, because essentially they afflict on him in his suffering the demand that he engage in philosophical discussion about his suffering and to defend his own character. It's sort of like flies buzzing around his sore head you know, while he's, trying, while he's suffering. And so during the rest of the book, each of these men go back and forth with Job three times. Uh, building up to the point where they've said everything they can think of and everyone falls silent. Now, the purpose of this, of course, is, as we read it, we are engaged with our own debates and our own beliefs about the meaning of suffering. Uh, or what is God's justice? What is his character? And we, we go along on this conversation with them. 
And so the question that Job and his friends are arguing about is whether there is any meaning to Job's suffering at all uh, and what that might be. And particularly his friends want to know, does Job deserve what's happening to him for any reason? And so each of the friends actually have similar arguments to make, but there are differences in the way they approach the question. And the next three weeks we're going to be bringing out some of those differences. Okay, but today we're looking at the words of Eliphaz, the first friend to speak, and we heard some of his words today. So Eliphaz is a wise man from a country called Timon, which is in Edom, which is a country near uh, Israel. And if we read through his words throughout what he says, Eliphaz is a representative of a fairly common belief at the time and today that there is a clear, solid connection between your character and our actions, the things we do, and the level of success and comfort we experience in life. Okay? So Eliphaz looks at Job and he's entirely sure there's an easy solution to Job's problem and that of anyone who suffers. Good people are protected by God and wicked people are punished. Problem solved. So this is, as he says in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 4, as we read, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plough evil and those who trouble, so trouble, they reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. So Eliphaz, this is his wisdom, he's secure in that. He's decided, I'm going to give my friend Job some encouraging advice on the basis of that. You know, he recognises, as he might, Job's lost a bit of perspective, as we all do when we get in emo- when we're emotional, when we're in a bit of pain. Uh, so he wants to lift him up, and he says, I want to give you the kind of advice that you would give to someone in the same situation, Job. So he tells him, or you know, I'm reminding you what you should know as a wise man, that we know, he says, that God looks after innocent people and he punishes the wicked. This is what we look at, we see when we look at it life. Of course, he says, you know, as he goes on, none of us are actually righteous before God and we don't need to think we are. And when we do the wrong thing, we do suffer for it. But, you know, Job, if you pray, if you come back to God, you acknowledge what you've done, uh, he will make things better for you. He'll bring back what you've lost. Maybe you've learned a bit of humility along the way, but things will be okay, you know, because you are fundamentally innocent. So it's a kind of neat capsule. It's solid wisdom, isn't it? It's a nice pill. Job, take this and you'll feel better, you know. Um... And Eliphaz finishes his first speech by saying, we've examined this and it's true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. There you go. Now, can you imagine how you might feel in Job's situation if someone came and said these things to you? I think I might hear this as a bit trite and not be very happy with my friend, and Job is certainly not as he goes on. So he comes back at Eliphaz a number of times uh, and pours out his frustration at this. Firstly, he says to you, look, you don't understand the depth and the seriousness of my suffering. You're not sympathetic enough. Job says, look, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would... Sorry, I have a water bottle down there. Could someone grab one for me in front of you, Ken? My misery would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words are impetuous. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. So he's saying, look, I'm suffering really badly. And all this simple wisdom that you've given me about life, it's not enough to make it better. And Job says, rack his brain as he might. He can't come up with anything he could possibly have done that would warrant such punishment from God. Why would God, he says, put anyone through this kind of torment? And, by the way, why does it seem that a lot of people do? Why does it seem to be the common lot of humanity? 
In essence, Jobis thinks this to Eliphaz, look, it's very easy for you to philosophize about suffering from a position of comfort. But when you're in suffering yourself, when it's not just theoretical, it's far more real. And how can this system of punishment and reward that Eliphaz believes in be measured against the actual experience of suffering, which seems limitless when you're inside it? So Job isn't having a bar of that, what Eliphaz says to him. But Eliphaz isn't finished, so he comes back a bit after this. And this time he's not so nice and not so gentle with Job. So he sort of is of the, of the opinion that if Job is going to question God and question him, maybe Job needs to be questioned a little more. So who is Job to question the wisdom of God? And the fact that Job does question God makes Eliphaz uh, start to question Job's innocence a bit more. So he thinks perhaps you are a bit proud. Perhaps you think you know more than you do and you're not really that smart. Um, you know, our ancestors have always believed this in punishment and reward for the good and the wicked. It was good enough for them. Why not for you? And in chapter 15, he says, he reiterates very strongly this belief that evil people suffer and are punished by God. And he doesn't go on and say the good people are rewarded because by now he started to think that Job isn't one of those people. He just needs to hear the bad stuff. Um, again, and so Job takes this in, but again, he's not put out by it. You know, he doesn't believe it. And in fact, with his own description of what's going on, uh, what it looks like from his perspective. And it seems to Job, rather, that receiving from, rather than he's receiving a wise judgment from God, um, instead, it feels to him as though God has just picked on him and violently attacked him in his anger and destructively and for no reason. You know, he'd be happy to know differently, but things seem so bad and it actually feels like God is his enemy now, not this judge trying to, you know, give him wise judgments. Now, so that's Job's comeback. And Eliphaz by now gets really fed up with Job in this um, conversation and he finishes his last speech by just straight out accusing Job of being an evil, evil man. Uh, he says, look, obviously you were oppressive, you were unjust, you treated everyone terribly, and that's why this has happened to you. Stop lying, stop denying it. God is just. Just submit to this reality, repent of your sins, and you might be forgiven. End of story. Thank you. Uh, and of course, Job, again, doesn't accept this. He doesn't believe this is true. And so that's the end of his argument with Eliphaz, just sort of circling around and around about this idea that if you suffer, you must have done something wrong. And if, that's, if that was true, then the only way to respond to suffering is to humble yourself, to repent, to accept that, to ask for forgiveness and hope that God will be merciful to you. And so I think it demonstrates that for someone like him, to give advice to a person who's suffering consists of, at first gently, but then more and more firmly insisting to the person who's suffering, they need to accept their guilt. Until you get to the point where they, you give up on them because they obviously don't understand. Um, and that's, it's that situation, it's that advice that Job actually rejects as false in his own situation. So having thought a bit about Eliphaz and what he, how he goes with Job, I want to think about the process of advice and comfort giving and suffering and what this says about that. Because Job comes out with a great rebuke of Eliphaz and his friends uh, in chapters 16 to, one to verses 1 to 5. And it's very worth reading. He's very sarcastic about them. So Job says to them all, I've heard many things like this. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Um, will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I, I could also speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring relief. So he, he calls them miserable comforters. 
you know, they've talked and talked at him and all their advice, and there's brought no comfort to him at all. And he thinks, I could give some encouragement to someone in this situation, but they haven't been able to. So the question for me is, why are they miserable comforters? Or what makes someone a miserable comforter, like these friends? I think that in the case of Eliphaz and the others, it's actually that what they really want to do in this situation is actually to defend their beliefs about suffering rather than actually offering any sympathy or comfort to Job. So their goal in this situation is to maintain the integrity of their system of beliefs, even if that means throwing their friend away and dismissing his life. And they do that, I believe, because the beliefs that they have about suffering enable them to avoid fear of the suffering in the world, to avoid confronting it in themselves and other people. So they don't need to be afraid because they've examined life. They said, we know this is true. The innocent people always prosper and the wicked always suffer. And guess what? We're pretty innocent, so we're going to be okay. And as I've mentioned, Job is a story. It's a narrative. It's, it's got characters in it. It's got um, movement. And all stories need a conflict in it, something that um, the, the, the heroes are fighting against. And often an antagonist, someone who is the opposition to the hero or the protagonist of the story. Now, Job has, I think, a number of antagonists. The first is the accuser in chapter 1, who challenges God as to whether Job is actually going to trust in him if life wasn't going so well for him. He might be the antagonist of Job. But I actually think that the real antagonist of Job, that's revealed as the book goes on, uh, is actually fear and the idea and the experience of chaos in people's lives. This is the actual antagonist to Job. Um, so the idea of chaos is that there are forces and realities in the world that are actually not orderly. They're not controllable, they're not predictable, they're not subject to laws or rules, or if they are, they're not ones that we understand. So there's chaos. And we'll think more about this a lot in the final sermon, because God, this comes up in God's response to Job at the end. But throughout the speeches of Job's friends, I think that underlying what they're saying to him is a fear of the kind of chaos that's represented by Job's apparently meaningless suffering for them. And a desire to push that chaos back into some framework that you can understand so that it's not to be afraid of anymore. And Job actually calls Eliphaz out on that in, in his first speech. So in chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, he makes fun of, of Eliphaz as someone who came to Job hoping that Job would give him the answers to suffering. This wise man from Teman actually isn't that wise. So Job says to him, The caravans of Teman look for water. The travelling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive here only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. So Eliphaz, he says, you're not a wise friend, you're a fearful man. You don't know what's going on. So the miserable comforter, I think, is someone who perhaps unconsciously wants to be comforted themselves by the person that they see suffering. So you see someone suffering and you want them to comfort you because you're afraid. You want to be comforted that the world is safe for you, that we won't suffer in that way, and that everything is actually under control. And I think one of, that, one of the whole points of the book of Job is to point out that this idea, the doctrine or belief of punishment and reward, as the meaning of suffering, it fails because it's based on our own need for order and security in the face of chaos rather than on the actual nature of the world or the nature of God. 
And so any advice or comfort that people offer based on that belief won't actually jibe kind of accurately with people's experience of what suffering is like. And in fact, it may make things worse for people to hear this. Because on top of someone's suffering then, you place the idea that this is happening to them because God is doing it to them for an obvious and clear reason. So you deserve it. It's the law of the universe. God's tormenting you for something that you've done wrong. Maybe you don't in the end actually deserve compassion or sympathy. And so I think that's how you might become one of Job's miserable comforters. Uh, and I think we can, can tell when we're, when we're being miserable comforters when we actually find ourselves blaming people for their own suffering in instances where, like Job, where it's absolutely got nothing to do with, what they're, with how they've lived. Um, or when we blame God for it and directly ascribe it to God's will as though we know. Um, and that's a temptation for Christians because we want to glorify God and say that God has chosen how things are happening and that he's chosen for this suffering to happen. He's in control. But when we do that, you know, when we do that, as Eliphaz did, we may feel we're even defending God's character. But we often end up in that process removing God's comfort from people and what he actually wants to offer. Uh, I think a miserable comforter, like Job's friends, leaves people with the belief or the impression that God is cruel and wants you to suffer. End of story. Uh, A number of years ago, I was visiting a woman in hospital um, while I was there on a chaplaincy placement. And she told me part of her story, uh, and she was in her 80s when I met her, and she told me that she had had a very strong faith in God, and she loved God, she loved reading the Bible uh, for most of her life, well into her 60s even. Um, But at that time, her daughter got sick and died. And when that happened to her, her pastor spoke to her, and what he said to her was that, God has taken your daughter away for a higher purpose, for a reason. And at that moment, she said to me, she lost her love for God. He is cruel, she said. I will never trust him again. That's what a miserable comforter can do. You know, and I'm not, I try not to judge people like that pastor who do this, um, because I'm often a miserable comforter too, and I think all of us here are tempted to be the same. Uh, because it is very hard to sit with suffering and not try to give it some kind of meaning and that makes us feel safe and puts everything back into its place. Um, something that makes the world seem less chaotic when we're confronted by it. So we say things, you know, uh, God must have decided that he needed another angel. Um, this sort of thing happens to lots of people. You're not, very, you know, it happen, you know, you're not particularly special in that. Um, there are lots of people worse off than you. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Is there some secret sin in your life that you might want to look at? All of those things, you might say. But Jesus, you know, didn't have much patience for that kind of thing. Um, and he was quite dismissive of the idea that punishment and reward are the basis for suffering in the world. And in John chapter 9, verse 1 to 4, we read, Uh, As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the disciples of Jesus believed the very same thing that Job's friends did, all those years later. Uh, But the only purpose that Jesus will find in this man's suffering is that it would be healed. 
In fact, and I think the fact is no explanation of suffering is ever going to lift it from people. Um, you know, yes, we can have better perspectives on suffering. You know, you can, are we, what is it, what I'm going through really that bad in the long run? Um, or be more positive and constructive in how I respond. Um, but in the end, there are only two things that resolve suffering. Either the situation changes, we are healed, the suffering goes away, we are saved. Or we change, we have a strengthening of our spirit so that we can endure suffering in a way that expands who we are, our knowledge of God and of ourselves. Last year we were reminded by a visiting preacher from Ridley College, Scott Harra, about um, the means of God's comfort in suffering. And he looked at us, looked at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So Paul teaches us in the Corinthians what he's learned, that comfort in suffering comes through our connection with God and through his sharing in our sufferings through Jesus Christ. Jesus carries our suffering. He knows it, he experiences it, he shares it. And through that experience of being with him, we learn to carry others' suffering and to comfort them. It's a relationship, it's a presence, it's actually a working with someone uh, and a sympathy with them. And that's not an easy way of living. It's actually very painful and very scary to take part in. And I say I'm not very good at it, um, as most of us aren't. You know, when people sometimes are sharing their pain with me or their suffering, I sometimes have to imagine, you know, that I've just shot a nail gun through my feet so that I can't get away. (laughs) You know, because you feel like leaving. You know, you feel like doing something that will make your feelings go away or make you not feel scared anymore or feel pain yourself. But that's not how God works, and that's not how Jesus worked. He didn't run away from the suffering of people. You know, he stayed with it. He went through it. And he doesn't offer advice to us you know, from a distance. Here's how you should think about your suffering and behave. He offers the comfort of his presence. You know, and so I think that Job's friends actually did really well for the first week they were there. Why? Because they said nothing in that first week. So chapter 2 of Job ends this way. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they, could, they saw how great his suffering was. So there is a different way to respond, a Jesus-like way to respond to suffering, and to share it, to feel it with someone, to be with them, the comfort of presence. It's a different way. It's not miserable, comforting. And when we do that, if we do that, we're like Christ. And I think we would be friends in need and friends indeed. So let me pray as we reflect on that today. Lord, we acknowledge we look at our own lives, we look at the world around us, where that is, the world is just full of suffering. It's beyond our comprehension and we can't, we can't take it. Um, so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to connect ourselves to you, to experience your love and comfort in suffering, so that out of us would flow comfort for others. And we pray that we would be wise and discerning in how we share with others in their suffering to offer proper comfort and care. Um, please, Lord, help us not to be afraid and to know that you are in control no matter what the world looks like. 
So we pray that we would know this as we look at Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen.